Today's scripture is 1 John chapter 3, verses 11 through 24. For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. By this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever we ask, we receive from him, because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. And this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. Whoever keeps his commandments abides in God and God in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. This is the word of God. Amen. All right, we're in 1 John chapter 3 still, going verse by verse through the Bible as we do with all the books we study. Um, John's words last week echoed uh, Jesus' own teaching in John chapter 8 that everyone lives right now as the child of one of two fathers. And those, he says, who do not believe in Jesus are the children of the devil. And so that we're clear, the devil is not some equal power with God. The devil is a creation of God. He is an angel that is in rebellion. Jesus calls him the father of lies and a liar and a murderer from the beginning of time. And so, uh, unless you are conceived by the Holy Spirit like Jesus, or were saved in the womb like John the Baptist, you are born, we are born children of wrath, we're born sinful. And for some, as I've learned through conversations and emails and various things, uh, that's a disturbing thought to consider being born um, a child of wrath. And the truth is, uh, I think we want to believe that man is innocent, that he uh, is innocent until something external ruins him. And the truth of Scripture says that something internal has already ruined us. It's called sin. And sin causes us to worship those things that God has given us as opposed to God Himself. And that has many different manifestations to it. But I think instead of being disturbed by this truth, instead of being uh, upset by this truth or even confused by this truth, my hope is that remembering the truth 
of our own depravity, of our own brokenness, of our own darkness that we pursued ourselves. My hope is that it brings us joy because it makes the love and the grace and the salvation of God that much more incredible. And there's something that we have to be very conscious of, I think, all the time in all humility is that God did not come into what is the worldwide uh, orphanage of fallen souls and select the clean and the uh, well-behaved and the quiet, good-looking kids who never were abusive and never were abused. The truth is that God only adopts broken sinners who sin. He only adopts sinners. So the whole world is broken, and by God's grace, He comes in and adopts some broken children. And so, right now, we, I, you, us, are either born a child of the devil, or we have been reborn and adopted as a child of God. And like all children naturally do with their dads, we talked about this last week, um, we will grow in either belief or unbelief and begin to look like our spiritual fathers. Now, that doesn't mean that you have some people sprouting horns and fangs or whatever you imagine the devil to look like, and the other kids with halos and like blue sashes as what they're wearing everywhere. That's not what I mean. What I mean is they will begin to imitate uh, their father's attitudes, their father's words, their father's deeds, that being those of their spiritual father. And our father's influence, as in real life, spiritually, governs our relationship with everything, with God himself, with creation, with other people. And John says that a love for God, birthed by God, but a love for God, or a love and a devotion to that which is not God, will manifest itself out in how we love and treat others. He said in verse 10 that we ended with that, very simply, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Colon. Here he goes. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God. So there's a moral piece to it. Nor is the one who does not love his brother. So there's a social piece to it. Um, the heart of the father is seen in his children who have a particular certain belief about the identity of Jesus. That's where it begins. Jesus is just a good teacher. He's not just a good example. He's, he is God incarnate, the Son of God. So that's first. God's children have a certain disposition towards sin. They don't deny it. They don't hide it. They confess it. They admit their brokenness and they ask for cleansing of the cross. And they have a certain expectation for the, how the world ends, where things are going. And until that end, until Jesus returns... God's children have a certain way to love, a particular way to love the world and what John will talk about, the family of God until the return of Christ. So he begins at verse 11 with a statement of everything he's going to say, and I could just read this and walk away, but we will say more for fear of a veil falling over our hearts and us pretending that it's about someone else. But he says it quite frankly, God's children love one another. They love one another. And I know a lot of us are like, yeah, I'm glad I do that. I love people. And I think that we have to ask ourselves why John talks about it so much. I, I hit this in 2 John when we hit his second letter, I think the third sermon in. 
And we have to be careful not to just consider how we understand what that means, but actually what the Bible says God understands what it means. Because you'll find that those things sometimes differ a little bit. Um, John is not speaking about, in this particular context, about loving our neighbors, though that's a very important command. He's not speaking about loving our enemies, though it's a very important command. He is speaking about a love for fellow Christians in community and what that looks like specifically. And you'll see that John has a tendency, which is a great thing for a pastor, to repeat the teachings of Jesus. Um, What he says here is nearly identical to what Jesus said on the night that he was arrested and he was speaking to his disciples. John records it in John 13 and it says this, Little children something that John has said several times, Let a, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So if you have love for one another, they'll know your disciples. Your disciple, if you have love for one another. Pretty clear. So again, I've been asking myself, why does John talk about love so much? You'll see, uh, as we get into John chapter 4, it's like love, 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 love. Second John, love, 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 love. Like, why is he talking about love so much? Is it because, like, the church he's writing to, these people just hate each other? They just mean to each other? Are they um, they're brothers and sisters in Christ, but they're acting like, you know, a little bit of sibling rivalry there? If you have you know, multiple kids, you know what that looks like, and you're like, I think you guys love each other. I'm not sure you have the same last name, but you seem to hate each other's guts right now. That happens, and so John could be dealing with that. More likely, or one thing to consider is that John is writing at a time when there's an incredible amount of persecution for the church. And the truth is that identification with the teachings of the apostle and, and participation in the church meant that you were worshiping Jesus as God. Okay, John makes that very clear in the beginning. Well, that's kind of frowned upon by the Romans at this time. And it's frowned upon because it is, without doubt, a life and death decision because worshiping Jesus meant you were not going to worship the emperor as God. And so you could potentially be killed. We don't know what that experience is like. It is very different for us in claiming Jesus. We might get mocked, made fun of, you know, hated, but... It's unlikely, at least right now, that we will be killed in this country, and that is a grace. But many people, most likely, are taking a kind of every-man-for-himself mentality, and a lot of people are leaving the true fellowship to avoid that persecution. So they're not recognized as a part of that group. And you see the things that this sect begins to deny are the very things that Rome would have a problem with. Um, others, well... In leaving the church then, these guys are basically not able to serve the family, love the family, care for the family as they would be doing in the family. And so to say, like, you're hating the brothers while you're leaving makes a lot of sense. At the same time, he's probably also writing to a lot of people who have stayed connected with the true fellowship, had one foot in there, if you will, but are acting as if they've left. And what I mean by that is that no one including the Romans, would ever know that they were Christians because they appear to be unloving towards them or could care less about them. Now, there's a lot of people that do that today. 
that are in churches but not loving their brothers, that are attending churches but are not part of the family. You might be one of those people. That is a true reality that John is speaking to, and I think it brings it full circle for us. So to encourage his readers, whether those who have left or those who have stayed, he decides, as a good pastor, to compare their passive refusal to love with Cain and his violent hatred and murder of his brother. So John isn't, as you can see, real interested in keeping people in the church necessarily, if that means telling things that tickle their ears. He basically says, you guys are just like murderers. And he says in verse 12, we should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. And I'll skip to verse 15. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. And I know where your brain and mind goes when I first read this. Well, I don't hate my brother. Remember, John is saying, if you refuse to love, this is who you are. And it was a wonder, like, why he used Cain. It seemed like a strange reference. And I began to read a little bit, and, and some of the Gnostic history says that some of the Gnostics actually uh, idolized Cain as a hero of that story. I was like, well, that makes sense that John would throw in Cain. If you know anything about Cain, which I'll, I'll tell you a little bit, in Genesis chap- chapter 4 is the story of Cain and Abel. Genesis chapter 3 is the fall of man. They're kicked out of the garden, and then Cain and Abel are born. Cain is the firstborn child of Adam and Eve, and he was a cultivator of fields. He was a farmer. And Abel was the, obviously the next son, and he was the shepherd of sheep. And one day, it uh, seemed like they had a practice after the Garden of Eden of, of making offerings to God. And so one day they brought an offering to the Lord, and Cain brought some fruit from what he had grown, and Abel uh, brought what he was called in the Scripture the firstborn of his flock, one of his sheep, the best of the flock. So the Bible says, and we're not exactly sure, I mean, we, a lot of scholars will, you know, this is why, this is why, but for whatever reason... We'll leave it there. The Bible says that God approved of Abel and his offering, and he did not approve of Cain's, which made Cain very angry. And so God speaks to Cain, and here's what he says. Genesis chapter 4, Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. So, some amount of time passes, and Cain says in verse 8, spoke to Abel, his brother, period. Wonder what that conversation was like, right? Doesn't really tell what it was, but the next thing that happens, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. And then the Lord said to Cain, after this happened, where is Abel, your brother? As if God didn't know. To which Cain responds, and mind you, if you ever have the opportunity to speak to God, and he asks you a question to which you know the answer, it's best to probably answer it honestly, because he already knows, but also just not to use sarcasm or um, what Cain does here. And he responds to him, I do not know. So lie, number one. And then he has to say, am I my brother's keeper? Wow. We don't think about talking to the Almighty like that. 
Now, it's unlikely that we would characterize, that you and I would characterize unloving um, and unloving people as murderers like Cain. The Bible does, but we would be reticent to do that. Relationally, if you think about it, although you might imagine something worse, taking one's life is the worst thing you can do to somebody. Now, Jesus describes Satan as a murderer from the beginning, as John does here, and a murderer is one who opposes the giver of life. Since God is the only one being that can give life, to be murderer is to oppose God directly. So taking one life is, is actively working against the character of God as life giver, just as refusing to love opposes the very character of God. John 4, we'll read, it says, by definition, God is love. So it's not just God is a loving being. He is by nature love. And suddenly the Trinity has much more meaning for us because we understand that God has existed in an eternal personal relationship with himself, eternally loving. He didn't need creation in order to demonstrate that he was loving. He already is love. By nature. By his character. So, to refuse to love is to do more than just do something that's kind of bad. It's to oppose God and his nature directly. Now, Cain, if you read a little bit of Jewish history, became known, not with the Gnostics, but in Jewish history became known as the symbol of self-love. Now, John says that Cain's daddy was Satan, and as such, Cain opposed God in this unloving and murderous way, but we're talking about love here. So we go, well, how was it? Well, you just put murder aside for a second. You see that Cain was devoted to himself. So refusing to love is starting to become maybe something I can't distance myself too much from. Cain was devoted to himself. He was devoted to his own work. He was devoted to his own reputation. He was devoted to his own power, to his own comfort, to his own success, to loving himself. That's what he was devoted to. He didn't view as a result Abel as a brother to be loved, a brother to be cared for, but as a rival. He was someone that he could use or abuse or remove if it meant taking away something from his self. Me, me, me. So when God asks, am I my brother's keeper? I'm sorry, when Cain says that to God, the answer for the children of the devil, Cain's answer is, no. I worry about mine. What's in it for me? So when you begin to make decisions about right and wrong, good and bad, what you should do or not do, and you begin with what's in it for me, be very careful. Be very careful. Because it seems like that's the spirit of Cain here. The answer for the children of God is, when the question is, am I my brother's keeper, is yes. Yes, you are. Yes, you have a responsibility to your brother. And we don't like to hear that. I know that for me, it, it, the flesh in me begins to rebel against that a little bit, though my desires are to believe it. And we can agree, I think, unless your Dr. Evil, that we shouldn't murder our brothers. Oh, of course not. We shouldn't murder them. Oh, no, no, no. That's terrible. 
Every culture in the world nearly will agree to that. But many of us, I don't think, can agree that we should actually care for them actively in a way that moves us beyond thought and sentiment into actually action. John tells us that that self-love is characteristic of a dead world. That's characteristic of a dead world. Now, that means that a love for the brothers that is birthed, it is, is abnormal, so to speak, that is birthed in an individual's heart, means, it signals that those who have, were dead have become alive. That a love for the brothers is actually the evidence of a heartbeat, the evidence of breathing, the evidence of life. That's what a love for the brothers shows us. And if it's not there, could still be dead. He says, verse 13, Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Catch that? We know, here's how we know, we have passed out of death into life because, connected to, we love our brothers. That's how we know. Not Now that you passed into death, you ought to love your brothers. You will. Whoever does not love abides in death. So, the hatred of the world, which probably, in their case, includes persecution, like people are really being murdered, should not surprise us. The hatred of the world should not surprise us. And I, I know that a lot of us go, well, I don't feel hated by the world necessarily. Jesus warned, though, his own disciples that the world would hate them because they hated him. Now, Jesus is the epitome of love, right? And the world killed him. The world murdered him. The world did not like him. So if we are to endeavor to imitate Christ and his love, there's going to be a negative reaction from the world. Our love for one another, our love for one another should be strange, should be foreign, should be different than the world. And one of my greatest fears, and I think it's a reality, is that the world doesn't see much of a difference. The world looks at Christians and goes, man, these guys are the biggest hypocrites. And I always go, but that's not a problem with God's Word. That's a problem with people. God's Word's very clear about how we're to love. And it should be otherworldly. It should be different amongst our community. People should look and say, man, not that those people are really loving to the world, although that's a glorious thing. Look how much love they have for one another. That's what Jesus said would mark his disciples. Their disdain for that kind of love, their mockery of that kind of love, should not surprise us. What should surprise us, what should surprise anyone, is a Christian a confessed Christian who does not love his brother. That should be really odd. That shouldn't make sense to us. Because a Christian has been changed. A Christian has been reborn. A Christian has come alive having been dead. A Christian has been adopted into a new family with a new father, with a new inheritance, with new ways. A Christian has the seed of Jesus abiding in his heart, controlling and motivating, empowering his actions. It should be odd not to see them love one another. That should surprise us. And so John doesn't stop at just saying, he could say, you guys should love one another and walk away. He's like, in case there's some confusion, it's not that... You should love each other. It's 
how you should love each other very specifically. And he says in verse 16, By this we know love. So in case there's confusion, here we go. That he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. And again, John's words aren't new. Same as Jesus. In John 15, Jesus said this, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. So Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ is the standard, the guide, and the example for our love. What that means is that Christ, not comfort, Christ, not convenience, Christ, not conventional wisdom, is how love is defined. That is what loving is. It's very simple for us. Well, I will love, but that's going to make me uncomfortable, so I won't. I will love, that's inconvenient. You know, loving would be this, and intellectually deciding, no. It's very clear. Christ defines what his life, his death defines what love is. And Jesus Christ did more than just say he loved his people. His love was active. His love had an effect that was visible. And though he loved, which he did, through preaching and teaching and miracles and healings, the pinnacle of his love came through the willing, joyful, humble sacrifice on the cross. And as we see Jesus being murdered, we see the hatred of the world contrasted most clearly with the love of God. What do I mean? Well, one, the world in particular, loves themselves and removes every potential threat to their stuff, to their way. That's why Rome participated. That's why the Jewish leaders participated. That's why you and I would have participated. Jesus gets in the way. This life of self-denial, not up for it. Yet, in contrast to God's love that is completely other-oriented, that is the giving of everything he has for the benefit of others. One is completely self-centered, and one is completely self-denying, and that is very hard for us to live out. It's very hard for us to actually live a life that's self-denying, because self-denial is not comfortable, it's not convenient, and it's foolish in this world. But true love, if Damascus Road Church, if we are going to have genuine love of Christ among our community... It means laying down our lives for those whom we call brothers and sisters. And I realize that a lot of us don't think that way. We understand our family being brothers and sisters. But even Jesus, I was reminded by Charlie, says when his mother requests him to come, he says, who is my mother and brothers? We are to be brothers and sisters in Christ, in the family of God. And it's unlikely... I guess the world could change really dramatically here, but it's unlikely that many of us or any of us will get the opportunity to literally die as Christ did for our brothers. But we do have the opportunity right now to live as Christ lived. 
The cross was the pinnacle of sacrifice, but that's not where it began. Philippians 2 gives us a great explanation of the attitude of Christ and how he lived. And it says this, and this is one of the most convicting verses, I think, in the Bible. It says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, dare we say be like Cain, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Which is yours in Christ Jesus. It's a gift. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus, through his life, beginning with his birth, made sacrifices of power, of position, of wealth, of fame, of all the glory due and reserved for the Son of God, something we can't even fathom. The infinite amount of sacrifice it came to enter into his creation's existence. So John argues we are to live sacrificially, and that's much more than making sure that Johnny has the bigger piece of pizza when we're sitting around a table. What it means is that we must be willing, actually more than that, we much must be intentional, striving to suffer personal sacrifice for the benefit of others. Now, verse 17, John pokes on us a little bit. He says, if anyone has the world's goods, that would be our livelihood, anything that we would consider our stuff. If he has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That's a convicting verse. And I'm not talking about the guy sitting on the corner street that you drive by and ignore. Maybe you give money to him. I'm talking about all the other needs that we walk by constantly that are right in front of us in this church. And I say that with my own personal conviction. I'm not up here going, oh, yeah, you guys need to be more loving. I need to be more loving and more sacrificial. Verse 18 says, Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. If I get up here, wow, it just hits me to say this. If I get up here and preach this and don't actually live it out, what a hypocrite. Before God, I could care less what you think. Before God. In other words, it, it really isn't loving if it doesn't actually lead us to action, and it really isn't loving action unless it costs us something. It has to cost us something. John doesn't give us any wiggle room either. He says that we do not love, not because it's like accidentally you don't, unintentionally. He says, no, there's intention about not loving. Very actively, we close our hearts. How do we do that? Well, I really believe that it's not that we can't sacrifice. It's just that we're not willing to sacrifice unless we can predetermine the benefit that we will get or someone else will get or God will be glorified. by. We kind of justify it. We measure like that's a worthy sacrifice and that's not. We believe some lies. And here are the lies we believe. Number one lie we believe, as this is why we close our hearts, 
is that we actually don't see our goods. We don't believe we have the goods to share. We say stuff like, well, I'd help, but I just don't have enough to love. The truth is, you and I are very rich. Now, monetarily, money-wise, even the poorest in America are much richer than most of the world. But it's not just about money. We are rich in all kinds of things by nature of just being in this country. And as people, we are rich in time, we are rich in energy, we are rich in words, we are rich in all kinds of resources. But we choose to spend all that stuff on other things rather than love our brothers. That's, the, that, that's what we do. And though you know, we get to these places, and I heard um, another pastor preach on this lately, where we get to this place where like, you know, I would give 50 bucks to you know, these people, I know they need it, or this guy over here, I know he needs a home, I would do that, but you know, my cell phone bill is just too important, and I need my cell phone, I need this. I mean, you start thinking about some of the, the really silly things we spend money on. Not that cell phones are, I mean, cell phones are great. TV is fantastic. But when those things start basically being more than what you're actually blessing another person with or giving to God, you go, it might be something a little off here. Some of us are, are working very hard. And we'll use it, oh, I'm just working hard, I'm just trying to make ends meet. Not realizing that you need some different ends is what the problem is. Some of us... Um, Make God has blessed us with making a lot of money. And I'll just use a number. You know, some of us make eighty thousand dollars a year, but just because you make eighty thousand dollars a year doesn't mean you have to live an eighty thousand dollar a year lifestyle. Nothing wrong. God has given many good things to us. I think we are here to enjoy them. But if your lifestyle means that you won't be in a position to meet someone in a need, whether it be a neighbor or a brother or sister in Christ, that should be a check in our spirit. Because it's not because we don't have enough. It's because we haven't intentionally said, this is to bless. This is when someone has a need that I, I'm going to be able to take care of them. And I had a conversation with Kaylin the other day. I was like, are we able to do that? What changes do we have to make so that we just have something there so when the need comes up, that I've already planned to bless. I've already planned ahead of time to be ready to help. The other lie we believe, though, is that I don't see my brother, right? It's like the, the um, Good Samaritan. We just see the, keep walking down the road, right? We don't see it. We're looking straight ahead. And I think the reality is that, uh, you know, we say, well, I'd help, but I just don't know who to love. Who is there? Well, you actually have to intentionally place yourself in a position to see your brothers and sisters. And that's why we, we do community groups. We don't just do them because, like, well, that's the way to grow the church, or that's the way that... That's the way that we actually can help one another fulfill this commandment. So we can see our brothers and sisters beyond just, I think I go to church with that guy on Sunday morning. It's to get close with one another. We have obligations to our, our birth families, if you will, but we also have commands regarding our spiritual family. And it's much easier. I, I, I savor the joy that, that Jim and their team will have when they, when they plant communion church, because when you're small, man, it's fun. 
It's easy. Everyone knows everybody. Everyone sees everybody. Everyone loves. And then suddenly you grow and you're like, who are you? And if you're not intentional about positioning yourself to be with each other, you slowly lose it. And people can hide in the church and feel like they're a part of something, but they're really not a part of something. And a lot of people will stand like, well, I just, you know, I'd help my brother over here, but I, I just have to take care of my family so much. And what you don't realize is that in idolizing your family like that, and that's what's happening, hiding behind your family as a reason not to do what God's commanded, that's what we're talking about. You're actually pastoring your children towards being unloving in the same way. You're not setting them an example of anything. Well, you're setting them an example that I think is possibly running against God's command. So we need to stop being afraid of one another. Stop making excuses. Stop hiding from Stop just coming to events. Stop just seeing us as people and start to see each other as family, as brothers and sisters in Christ with a responsibility to care for. The other lie we go is like, well, I can see them, you know, I think, I have some goods, I guess, but I don't really know how to help them. I mean, I, I would love if I knew how exactly I could, I could actually do that. And I think, again, you just haven't taken the time to know the needs. Even people who, uh, who sit in community and are in community together can actually not know each other very well. Considering the other's interests as more important than your own is the attitude of Christ. And the fact is, we don't know enough about each other's needs because we don't ask. We don't ask what we need. We don't endeavor to know, well, how, what's your life like? And to listen, what's going on? What kind of, and not to say that everyone needs a check. That's not what this is about. Some people need encouragement. Some people just need help moving. But to be intentional about listening and knowing. I want to know your heart. I want to know your name. I want to know how I can love you. And you start going, is this what it means to love one another? I think so. Because spending time moving somebody's house, for example, is going to cost me some time. And I would rather not, therefore I know it's going to be loving. It's always a blessing. Honestly, it always is. But there are many times where I'd rather just spend time with my family. Why not bring my family with me? There's just so many ways that we don't consider what people need. Some do need money. There are single moms in here. We've had people come and say, I'd like to support um, a single mom, but don't tell anybody. Glorious. And they're supported because they listened and they knew and they watched. Knowing enables us to actually love people in the way they actually need as opposed to just kind of assuming what they need because that's convenient for us. Knowing one another is what we must do. And for many of us, um, the truth is that we don't love because we don't actually believe that we ourselves need love. So we assume that about everyone else. Um, I don't need relationships. I don't need community. I've got plenty of friends. Don't need that. The truth is that God tells us to live in community because, newsflash, he's the creator and he knew how we were built and what we needed. It'd be best to probably listen to him. Now, what he says is that community is not only good for us, it's part of our identity in Christ. Jesus died for the church. 
He is the head of a body, not just a person. And we are part of a family, and we all need to be loved, and we all need to love. It's not just be a good idea. It's something that we need to look more like Christ, which is the most glorifying thing to God. And so we must not only position ourselves in a place financially and otherwise to actually help, we actually have to be in a position to be helped, to be known, to be seen. I've heard it said by those who get really busy with life, well, we don't have time for community, we're just trying to survive. I understand that. I understand that. But you may as well say, I don't have time to love my brothers. I don't have time to obey God's command. Do we really believe that God would command it as a burden? I believe it's a grace. Community is, in fact, part of survival. It's necessary to it. So if you find yourself fighting against this command, know that whatever reasons you might have for your refusal to love is rooted in a rebellious heart. Okay? Ask yourself... How, as John does, the love of God can abide in someone who does not actively love their brothers. And I'm not defining for you what that looks like. But we have to consider what God has said it looks like and then say, am I following that? If, a re- if reborn children of God do not love in word and deed like Jesus, then it's doubtful that the Spirit of Christ is working in us. That desires God to be there and it's manifested in some way. I don't know. That's between you and your Lord. So we'll close it out. Having proclaimed the commandment of God, John closes some words with about how our hearts might respond to it. So there's a couple options. It says our hearts are either going to condemn us or our hearts are not going to condemn us. An active love for, for brothers serves to assure, he says, our own hearts before God that we're his kids. And without doubt, because I know I experienced it this week, many of us hear this, Love one another, Jesus sacrificed, I suck. You start to feel despairing. You start to go, man, at least I did, thinking about my failure to love as I should have. And we may, even this week, fail to love at an opportunity. Fail to give generously where we should have. And John assures this, though, that even if our heart condemns us, Even if heart says, dude, you should have given. You should have acted. You should have spoken. You should have loved. You should have put an arm around. You should have been there. Even if your heart condemns us because the Spirit of God is in there, we can have confidence that our faith in the perfect love of Jesus is what decisively saves us. It's not dependent on how well we love. So even if we fail again and again and again and again and again, God already knew we would, and he is there to remind us that you're still my boy. You're still my girl. And it's that kind of love of a father that empowers us to want to love the next time. And then he says, when our hearts don't condemn us, because of course our hearts may not condemn us hearing this, we we hear God's command to love one another and we don't feel guilty at all. One of two things could be happening. One, in truth, you haven't obeyed the command. You haven't loved as you ought, and yet you feel no sense of conviction for not loving. 
That's called an unbeliever. It's called an unbeliever. I'm concerned if, if you confess to be a Christian and you have absolutely no concern for the brothers and sisters that God's called you to be with. And I haven't said any names, so if you're feeling conviction now, good sign. All right? The second is when your heart doesn't condemn you, it's because you've endeavored to love as Christ did. You've endeavored to fall, fail, fall, fail, follow God's commands, even if you failed to the best of your ability because you have the desire rooted in you. And so you can rejoice if your heart's not condemning you because you know that as a child of God, you can approach the throne of God in confidence and not in shame. And John says something odd here. We have to be careful with it. It says that God the Father will answer your prayers. And it's tempting to think that God's going to answer because he's just pleased with our obedience. I do believe he's pleased. But rather, I think what John means here is that our obedience to that particular command already demonstrates our delight in God and our delight in his will. And therefore, when he answers prayer and we pray to him, he always answers prayer according to his will, even if it's against our desires. But because we already delight in his will, we will be pleased. We're pleased regardless if it's a yes or a no because we already evidence a delight in God's command that's difficult for us. And he closes with saying, regardless of the commands, there's one most important command to obey. And he says, this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. So as we end, no. The most important command to heed is not one of God's laws. They're important, but that's not the most important command to heed. The most important command to obey is God's charge to believe in the name of Jesus Christ. In other words, our commitment is one of faithfulness to faithfulness and not a commitment to fruitfulness. There is an order to things. We're to be faithful to our knowledge and understanding and acceptance and belief and confession of Jesus Christ. The fruitfulness will follow. But ours is a commitment to faithfulness, of delighting in God, not in working for Him to delight in us. There is an order to things. A dead man cannot love, but a man made alive by the love of Jesus, cannot help but love his brothers. Our new life then doesn't begin or end with faith and good works. Our new life begins with faith in Christ. And it ends with hope for Christ. And in the in-between time, we love like Christ. Because that is a response to a loving dad. So as you come, if you're a Christian and you have felt, man, I don't know if I've loved as I ought. The truth is none of us have. The truth is that's why we come to the table every single Sunday because you will never love as you ought. But I do believe 
the more we endeavor to look like Christ, the more we sit in the love of Christ, the more we will know our Father and the more we'll look like Him. So as we come to the table, we confess every Sunday that, look, I have failed to love as I ought, and I pray, Father, through Christ, you'll help me to love more. And if you are not a Christian, again, as I did last week, I pray that you will have your eyes opened up to see the love of the true Father that is incomparable and possibly greater than the love of this ugly dad who provides you nothing but the sin you want that will lead you to death. Come to the table, join the family, because that's what we do. We take, participate together in the meal of Christ as a family, saying we are one with another and we love one another.